0: I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of Trial Balloon.
1: Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more.
0: Tegan, hello from the past.
1: (laughs) Are we in the future?
0: We recorded this yesterday to post today so that it gets put out to listeners tomorrow.
1: It's like time travel.
0: It's just like time travel. This is the July 4th week Mailbag and Tagen Personal Remembrance podcast that we promised last week. We've continued to get outstanding questions from listeners. Thank you so much for that. We'll get to a few of them today. Tagen. unfortunately, I am not in a position to ask you how you enjoyed your 4th of July fireworks because we're recording this before those actually
1: occurred. It's true, Chris, and I don't really have to actually ask you about your travel because I know that you were very anxious about all of the airline delays ahead of the holiday. So I hope that you are currently, as you're listening to this episode of Trial Balloon, I hope you're not still stuck in an airport somewhere. Uh,
0: Since we're recording this before I actually go travel, if you could just please put in a call to the FAA and if my flights can just work seamlessly, I'd be
1: so grateful. (laughs) Of course you would. Yeah. Anyway, it looks like it's going to be an adventure regardless.
0: It's an adventure regardless, and we will talk about it all next week. But this week, it's the mailbag. Quick reminder, if you want to send questions to the mailbag, you can contact Hagan via Political Wire. You can email me by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now let's get on with business. The first mailbag question was about this article from Semaphore, which was posted about a week and a half ago. Remember the Steele dossier, question mark? Congressional Republicans certainly do. House GOP members voted to formally censure Representative Adam Schiff, one of Donald Trump's most vocal Democratic critics in Congress, for spreading, quote, false accusations, end quote, that the former president colluded with Russia to beat Hillary Clinton in 2016. Among his official list of sins, hyping the lurid document written by a former British spy that made since discredited claims about Trump's ties to Moscow. As they rebuked Schiff, Republicans were also busy raising an uproar over unproven bribe allegations against Joe Biden, specifically that during his time as vice president, he received $5 million from an executive at Burisma the Ukrainian energy company where his son Hunter sat on the board. The charge is based on uncorroborated years-old testimony from a confidential FBI source, which was recorded on a so-called FD-1023 form some lawmakers have been allowed to view. So our question from listener Brian H. is, with the current spate of allegations against Hunter Biden, and by extension the president, I've been seeing comparisons to the Steele dossier only this time with the parties reversed. What do you think of that comparison?
1: There were parts of the Steele dossier that were true, but some of the more extreme allegations proved fleeting at best. Of course, the infamous P-tape never really materialized and still has not materialized. So there might've been all sorts of things wrong with that. The idea that it is similar to what House Republicans are charging the Biden family with right now, is very similar. These are very unsubstantiated Claims, I think they're actually in many ways they're worse, though, because at least there was a dossier put together by a former British spy that at least alleged these things, even if some couldn't be proven. The problem with many of the House Republican charges is that they're made by supposed witnesses who don't exist anymore or who can't be found. And there's really no documentation around any of this. What is most interesting about this question from Brian, though, is the fact that the publication where this comparison was raised is semaphore. And why is that important? It's a semaphore. The editor-in-chief is Ben Smith. Ben Smith was also the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, which released the Steele dossier and actually published it as if it was newsworthy and probably drew far more attention to it than otherwise would be. Up until that point, it was just talked about. You might've been able to find it on social media, but BuzzFeed News, when they published it, made it available to a much wider audience and really added some legitimacy to it. It's really interesting that Semaphore is raising this comparison now, given the fact that Ben Smith was editor of both publications.
0: Do you feel that Ben Smith will feel a need to emphasize or raise the Hunter Biden Allegations to balance out his previous actions?
1: I'm not sure what his motivations are, and I won't speak to that, but I do find it interesting because this comparison that's being made really isn't being made elsewhere. It's not being made in the New York Times, the Washington Post. I have not really heard it on television, but it is being made in semaphore. Let's just say I don't think it was Ben Smith's finest moment to decide to publish the Steele dossier, particularly since so much of it was false. It was a document that was being talked about. That's why he felt the need to publish it. But I think a much better journalistic effort would have been to really take the Steele dossier apart, do hard reporting on its allegations and try to understand what is true and what is not true. It's interesting that another publication by Ben Smith is actually raising this right now. The comparison, I think, falls apart pretty dramatically when you look at the charges that House Republicans are making against the Biden family. They really do seem to be pulling these out of thin air. And like I said, the witnesses that they claim or the whistleblowers that they claim have disappeared are not there. And it really seems like a circus on the House Oversight Committee, really. It doesn't seem like many of these charges are very substantive at all. And so when you talk about Adam Schiff, Adam Schiff was not taking the Steele dossier as fact and reciting these before the House Intelligence Committee, just like James Comer is doing currently for the House Oversight Committee. I think the comparison falls apart there, but it is interesting the Ben Smith link, I think.
0: There's been too much news the last couple of weeks, and we did not actually get a chance to talk about the Adam Schiff censure. What did you think of it? What are the politics around it? How does it help or hurt Adam Schiff in terms of the California Senate election? How does it help or hurt anything else regarding the GOP and the House of Representatives?
1: Yeah, I think Adam Schiff thinks it helps him in his run for Senate in California. He immediately started fundraising off of it being the named enemy of Republicans is probably a good thing for Adam Schiff. It really does help him raise money, particularly from small donors all across the country. So politically, it probably helps Adam Schiff. As somebody who's always respected our institutions of the House and the Senate, I think it's kind of amazing to me how things like impeachment and things like censures of lawmakers are really just thrown around as such commonplace penalties at this point. At one point, being censured by the House of Representatives was a big deal. In this case, as soon as it happened, Democrats crowded around the House floor with Kevin McCarthy holding the gavel and just shouted, Shame, shame, shame. And McCarthy really lost total control of the House floor at the time. I think it shows that the House of Representatives is a mess right now. I think it shows that Kevin McCarthy is a weak speaker. And I think it shows that really many of these things that used to be considered really severe penalties just aren't anymore. And so it's kind of a weakening of our Democratic. Institutions and how we kind of in the guardrails that we kind of keep things on track in this country. So that's unfortunate.
0: Any chance that Schiff moves to expunge his censure the way that one say might want to expunge an impeachment?
1: What a ridiculous thing that is! I mean, the Give, idea they, to- give
0: the context, yeah, for folks who don't know what I'm talking
1: about. This idea by House Republicans that Kevin McCarthy this week endorsed, the idea of expunging Donald Trump's impeachments because they should never have happened. It's literally an attempt to rewrite history and say something did not happen. What was most interesting is after McCarthy kind of endorsed this effort is you had legal scholars from liberals like Lawrence Tribe at Harvard to uh, Jonathan Turley on the conservative side at George Washington University coming out and say expunge? You can't expunge something. You can't say something didn't happen when it did. And the idea that House Republicans are rallying around this as a potential way to, again, suck up to Donald Trump, I mean, the whole thing is just ridiculous. And no, I would not support Adam Schiff's effort to try to expunge his censure. It is a fact that it happened. I think that the ramifications are probably much less severe and much different than being impeached. But nonetheless, what a ridiculous thing. It really, it's one of those things where it makes you wonder, how did we get here?
0: I don't think that Adam Schiff would support a movement to expunge his censure.
1: I think he wants to wear it. He's talking about it. He's wearing it as a badge of honor, kind of as Donald Trump claims he wears the indictments against him as a badge of honor. I think there's a little bit of a difference here. Adam Schiff might ride this into the US Senate, whereas Donald Trump's badge of honor, I don't think is going to help him nearly as much in his fight against special counsel Jack Smith. Anyway, this is where we are.
0: And thank you to Brian H. for the question. Now to Simon D. and a question on 2024 contingency plans. Simon asks, the Biden camp is confident in their ability to beat Trump in a general election. How well do you think they'll be able to compete against a different, younger Republican? If Biden doesn't make it all the way through to the convention, is the only option to promote Harris? Or would the rules of the convention allow them to pull someone like Newsom out of a hat? So I think that's actually two different questions. And I really commend Simon for doing the old news conference trick of asking a part one and a part two. I think that part one is how well do we think the Biden camp would be able to compete against a different younger Republican, so if something happens to Trump? And then the second question, what's the contingency if Biden does not make it all the way through to the
1: convention? The first one in terms of what if Biden does not run against Trump? I think the Biden campaign is justified in thinking that they can beat Trump again. Trump has only gotten more controversial in the four years since the last election. And his support nationally has not grown. He's done nothing to grow his base of support at this time. So I think Biden looks at at a repeat of the last election. He's definitely favored in that. In terms of somebody else, the problem is, is that most of the Republicans running, not all of them, but most of them are running to Trump's right. So you've got Ron DeSantis, who currently is the polling leader for second place in that race. And everywhere you look, he's trying to get more controversial than Trump. He's running to Trump's right on virtually every issue. Instead of a nationwide ban of abortion of 15 weeks, DeSantis is touting his six week ban in Florida. And so, literally, every single issue that comes around, DeSantis is trying to be more extreme than Donald Trump. And the bottom line is if he ends up winning the nomination, it's going to be very hard for DeSantis to tack back to the center and to somehow run in a general election. That said, there are other candidates running. And I think that someone like Tim Scott from South Carolina, the senator, who is a very conservative senator, but there is something about his personality that doesn't make him seem as extreme. And we'll see if he ever gets on a debate stage with Donald Trump. We'll see how that fares. Perhaps Tim Scott is simply running to be Trump's vice presidential candidate. But someone like Tim Scott, I think, would be a much tougher candidate if he were to get the nomination. The problem is that's a big if, Chris getting the nomination at this point is going to be very hard because you're going to have to run right through Donald Trump. Which explains
0: why DeSantis is doing what he's doing. I think that anyone in the Republican race right now has to be feeling like the general election is a later problem. And first they got to get through this uh, Republican primary and maybe the route is to the right of Trump. What about the other half of the question from Simon? If for whatever reason, Biden does not make it through to the convention, what are the Democrats' options then?
1: There are rules that would allow the convention to choose another candidate. Political junkies would be wild about and look at the jockeying that would go on. I think Kamala Harris would obviously be a front runner in that simply because she is vice president currently. But the idea that a Gavin Newsom or a Gretchen Whitmer might throw themselves into the ring and battle it out for the nomination, that would certainly be interesting. What I think is a more complex question, though, is what happens if Biden is nominated at the convention and then we're incapacitated sometime later, you know, as you move towards the election. And there is a period of time where, again, the Democratic National Committee could meet and could choose someone else. But I think in that case, it becomes Biden's running mate who will almost certainly be Kamala Harris. I think Kamala Harris will have the overwhelming advantage in in a situation like that. But as you move closer and closer towards the general election and when voting starts and early voting starts in a lot of these states, it's actually an unknown in terms of what happens As everybody who reads Political Wire, who listens to Trial Balloon knows, we elect the president based on electoral votes. And so you're actually voting for electors for candidates instead of the actual candidates themselves. They meet in December, in the convening of the Electoral College, and they then vote for president. In a situation where that candidate, where they're pledged to, is no longer able to serve, you would literally have a situation where the electors would be freed to vote for who they thought should be the president. And that would be the truly wild scenario for political junkies if for some reason Joe Biden were to regardless of what happens with the election those electors that were pledged to Joe Biden and Joe Biden's no longer able to serve would then be able to vote for anybody including a Gavin Newsom as you know Simon suggests so it gets really dicey in that situation and like we've seen so many times over the last you know 5 or 6 years it's not clear that the founders really thought through all of these different ramifications and we could have some real surprises on our hands it may seem far fetched it's never happened in our country's history but you know when you've got an 80 year old man running for president. He's very healthy now, but you never know what's going to happen. That could obviously be a factor. And let's just say it as it is, Donald Trump, who's 77 years old, if he were the Republican nominee, the very same thing could happen to the Republican party as well. So That could be a very interesting turn of events, you know, in terms of political junkies watching this election.
0: But aren't you worried? I mean, if there were surprises, if things were thrown into turmoil, electors all of a sudden had free reign to choose the candidate that they wanted. Aren't you worried about what that would do to political wire viewership? I mean, no one
1: would be interested.
0: That could tank your whole business.
1: I think political wire is going to be just fine like that. You know, The one thing when I decided to make political wire my full-time job, it was the biggest thing I was worried about was whether or not politics would get boring. Chris, it's been years since politics was boring, so I'm not really worried about that.
0: That does not seem to be something that one needs to be worried about now. And that segues very, very nicely into the last topic that I wanted to talk about in this special Mailbag Plus Tegan Remembrance episode, which was another employment role that you had before Political Wire, before your life that immediately preceded Political Wire, and that was one of your roles in Connecticut state government. And you wrote a post on June 28th, so if people want to go find it, they can. And you titled it, Remembering Lowell Weicker. I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, but never expected to return after finishing college. The city was in decline my entire life, and I just assumed I'd move to Boston or New York or Washington, D.C., where there were better opportunities. But Lowell Weicker, who passed away today, brought me back. Weicker was a maverick Republican senator who challenged Richard Nixon over Watergate and pushed back against his party's rightward shift under Ronald Reagan. He finally dropped his Republican affiliation and won the 1990 governor's race as an independent. Weicker was fiercely independent, and his tremendous wealth led his campaign motto of nobody's man but yours. He could not be bought by anyone for any reason. I joined Weicker's Office of Policy and Management just after graduate school, where I served as the executive director of a board of economists and business executives who advised the governor on economic development initiatives. It was an amazing experience to work on the very same issues that led me as a child to think Connecticut would never be my home when I became an adult. Weicker was truly a giant in Connecticut politics. He was actually six feet, six inches tall. And he was unrestrained in his criticism of the petty politics that he felt caused government to fail its citizens. For me personally, he ignited an optimism about government's ability to get things done. It's something that, despite the often depressing politics of our times, has never left me." I thought that was just a wonderful piece. I, of course, met you just before you took that role, meeting in grad school, and that was your role right after school. And it was, I think, a really kind and generous and heartfelt remembrance. And man, what a remembrance. I think what really struck me was, yes, obviously it was a remembrance about that one person, but you were almost remembering before color TV was invented. It's like, that (laughs) felt like black and white to me. That's what it felt the remembrance was.
1: It does feel like it was a long time ago, and it really wasn't that long ago, really, in the scheme of things. But in terms of our politics and the way our politics has changed, it absolutely was. I mean, you had a Republican member of the U.S. Senate challenging Richard Nixon, making his name for being a maverick, fighting much of Ronald Reagan's agenda while he was a member of the Republican Party, getting reelected in the state of Connecticut, very popular, so popular that he was able to actually run for governor as an independent and win. And then what was really the most remarkable thing about Lowell Weicker in my view was Connecticut had funded its government solely on the basis of a sales tax. In the sales tax, it was the highest tax in the country. I remember it as probably about 8%. What happens when you try to fund a government on the sales tax is during downtimes, during recessions, revenue the state brings in falls dramatically. During boom times, you know, it rises dramatically. But what that does is it makes it very hard for the state government to plan its spending and plan its initiatives. And so Lowell Weicker saw this. He realized it was preventing Connecticut from doing so much. And he insisted on the passage of a state income tax, something very unpopular. But he managed to piece together a coalition to get that done, Democrats and Republicans, to actually get that pushed through the state legislature. And you know when you talk about politicians who run as independents, the biggest criticism of them is that what happens when they get elected, they don't have any members of their party in the state legislature. And that was true for Lowell Weicker, but he strong-armed the state income tax and got it through and got it passed. And to this day, it remains in Connecticut. I mean, it was his most important political accomplishment. It was his legacy. And as a result, it put Connecticut state government on much more stable fiscal ground moving forward. So that some of the important initiatives, the ones that I talked about, whether they were economic development initiatives, whether they were infrastructure initiatives, it allowed Connecticut to actually plan correctly. Connecticut has had much better times since. Lowell Weicker was a one-term governor at that point. He essentially did what he could do during that term. It was unlikely that he was going to be able to run for re-election. His lieutenant governor, Eunice Gork, tried to run on his third-party banner. It was called a Connecticut party. I grew up next door to her when I was a kid, and she was a wonderful public servant as well. But she ran on this third-party ticket trying to run, and she didn't quite have the ability to continue on and that third party fizzled out. But Lowell Weicker's accomplishments and his legacy did not. And so when I talk about Lowell Weicker and when you hear that he died, it did make me feel that even though it seems so many years ago, that optimism that I still have about government's ability to actually work for the people, to actually get real things done, for me personally, was linked back to watching Weicker do what many people thought was politically impossible. It really came back in a rush today when I heard that news.
0: Yeah, it felt that way in reading the piece that certainly came across. Was Weicker vocal at all over the last four to eight to 10 years? Was there anything that he said or wrote or felt? And two, did he maintain any influence in the state?
1: Not really, Chris. He was followed up by John Rowland, a Republican governor who ended up in prison two different times for two sets of crimes, corruption the first time, campaign finance fraud the second time. And there's currently a Democratic governor, Ned Lamont, in Connecticut. He didn't have a significant impact in the state politics later. As I mentioned, his third party kind of withered away after Eunice Gork was defeated in 1994, and he really didn't speak out that much. He did do some endorsements of candidates in in his few years after leaving office, but in recent years, he's been pretty much silent. So we're not really sure what he thought about our current situation. One could just imagine him watching the impeachments of Donald Trump, hearkening back to his time on the Watergate committee and challenging so many of those Nixon aides with his really just very moving testimony. At the time, I remember I was just a child, but I remembered his questions and I remembered so many Democrats feeling so proud of Lowell Weicker that he was their senator in Connecticut in the fact that he was standing up for what they thought was right. So he was really a unique politician, maybe a once in a generation politician. You know, we don't really see this type of person anymore. It seems that they are out there. I don't want to get people too discouraged, but he was truly one of a kind
0: that is the way to take it. We have to take a remembrance like that. And it's why I wanted to talk about it today. And I thought it was really, really such a nicely written piece. Of course, I remember you working there and uh, I remember our conversations and the energy that both of us felt and feel around the positive impact that public service can play. That's important to remind. And it's important to remind not because of the nostalgia, but because of the future opportunity. Nice to get to talk about that. Our thanks to Brian H., And Simon D for their questions. And Tegan, I can say to you with complete clarity that I wish to you right now that you will have had an excellent 4th of July and that you are currently remembering it fondly and saw an incredible set of fireworks that we will get to discuss next week.
1: And I'm talking to future Chris, and I hope that your travels home were eventless and came through all right. No airport delays.
0: From your mouth to the FAA's ears. Talk to you soon, Tegan.
1: Talk to you soon, Chris.